Once again, you already know what it is and you already know where you have reached. This is the number one up-and-coming professional wrestling podcast anywhere in the world broadcasted right here from New York City and heard all over the world. This is Hubbard Wrestling Weekly Podcast. I am the founder and host of the Hubbard Wrestling Weekly Podcast, Sean Hubbard. What up, though? It is June 21st, 2019, the first day of summer, and we are getting the summer started off with another big-time retro review show, this time of WrestleMania 7 from March of 1991. But I got to let you guys know some very special information before I introduce you to my guest for tonight's show. For all my business owners out there looking to project yourselves in the best possible light on the internet, there's only one place to make sure your business is seen the right way to all those people out there, and that's through Hospraya.com. I'm talking about web platforming. I'm talking about web development. There's only one place to go. H-A-A-S-C-R-E-A.com. That's Hospraya.com because we love tech. For my local listeners in the New York area, make sure you check out Becky Bubbles Laundry Center located on 3 Huguenot Street in New Rochelle, New York. If you bring your drop-off laundry to Becky Bubbles in New Rochelle, New York and say the special code Hubbard Hammerlock, you will get 10% off your drop-off laundry service. That's right, 10% off. And in addition to that, if you call them up at 914-576-9115 and take advantage of their awesome delivery service, you will get a special discount on your laundry just by saying Hubbard Wrestling Weekly. Once again, Becky Bubbles Laundry Center, 3 Huguenot Street, New Rochelle, New York. For all my people out there looking to relocate, get a brand new apartment, brand new home, whatever the case may be, there's only one person to call representing Century 21. I'm talking about Mrs. Joyce Leaf. She can be reached at 914-830-3087 or 914-235-4996. She is who you need to reach if you're looking to get that new home, that new apartment, relocate your family. You want to make sure you're living in the best place possible. And Mrs. Joyce Leak is the person to call. Also, her email is joyce.leak7788 at gmail.com. That being said, one more thing on the agenda. Quintos Deli, located on Webster Avenue in New Rochelle, New York. I already talked to you guys about your real estate needs. I already talked to you about your web development needs. I already talked to you about your laundry needs. Now we got to make sure we get you fed. Quintos Deli, Webster Avenue, New Rochelle, New York. They are awesome. I'm talking about the best cuisine in all of Westchester County, maybe all of New York. Let them know Hubbard Wrestling Week you sent you. Get their specialties, get their entrees, get their breakfast, get their lunch, get their dinner. You will not be disappointed. Quintos Deli, Webster Avenue, New Rochelle, New York. Let them know that Hubbard Wrestling Weekly sent you. You already know what it is, man. We are in the building for episode 35. You heard me right. Episode 35 of the Hubbard Wrestling Weekly Podcast, bringing you the very best in pro wrestling, bringing the very best in boxing, mixed martial arts. We were so excited to be in the building for Bellator 222 this past Friday night from Madison Square Garden. The Bellator 
team over there, you know, Dan, CJ, all those guys at Bellator are awesome. I thank them so much for the hospitality and covering that event. I was cage side. It was an unbelievable night of boxing. Rory McDonald retained the Bellator Welterweight Championship of the World and moves on in the Bellator World Grand Prix Tournament. You know, Chael Sonnen, a heartfelt loss, turned out to be his final loss as he retired inside the cage. I covered the press conference. I have that right on the Hubbard Wrestling Weekly official YouTube channel. Make sure you check that out, as well as Rory McDonald's post-fight interview. We have everything for you guys, man, right here on Hubbard Wrestling Weekly. We got you covered on all combat sports, and we are fired up. Shout out to Fight TV. Appreciate all the love you guys have been showing me. Nothing but love sent right back to you. But we're going to get down to business right now, man. All my listeners listen on HubbardWrestlingWeekly.com, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, The Daily Smart, BodySlam.net, wherever you are listening and however you are listening, I say God bless you. I say thank you. Let's get into this thing, man. WrestleMania 7, March of 2. Excuse me. I'm messing up already, y'all. I'm excited. March of 1991. And my guest right here on the Hubbard Wrestling Weekly Podcast is somebody who has studied this event. He's a student of the game just like I am. He is the proprietor of the Wrestling Estate. Some real good content they have going on over there. So happy to have him on my show. His name is John. Yo, John, welcome to the show, my dude. Let's talk about WrestleMania 7. What's going on? Thank you. I like that. I'm going to put that on a t-shirt, man. Thanks for having me uh, on your show. No doubt, man. I'm so happy to have you, John. I know you're really uh, a student of the game, as am I, so it's more than appropriate for you being with us tonight on the Hubbard Wrestling Weekly Podcast to talk about one of the biggest shows uh, in history, but not without a little bit of controversy, man. So you ready to jump right into this thing? Yeah, let's do it. All right, cool. So, the year is 1991. March 24th, to be exact, we're at the Los Angeles Memorial Sports Arena, man, and and the world is kind of like trying to gather itself from the Ultimate Warrior era. The year prior, WrestleMania VI, we did a retro review about that back on June 7th. Make sure you check it out in the archives. And, um, you know, the Warriors' reign was so-so. His victory at WrestleMania VI was really good, but the reign was so-so. I guess WWE decided they wanted to go... A different direction so the warrior would lose the title to sergeant slaughter back at the royal rumble 1991 but john i want to start off with kind of like the background of the the um i guess you say the venue for this particular event and that was originally supposed to be the los angeles memorial coliseum they were going for a hundred thousand people but there was kind of just some discrepancy about whether or not they'd be able to fill the building they were talking about the storyline with Sergeant Slaughter being a little bit of a problem. Do you remember, you know, the change in building and why they made that change back in 1991? Well, I'm also, from what I know about it is everything that I've either read or listened to on uh, the Something to Wrestle With podcast with Bruce Pritchard and uh, Conrad Thompson. And, and uh, it, there's, two, there's two schools of thought here. Pritchard claims that there were uh, death threats and bomb threats and security issues because of how controversial the Sergeant Slaughter uh, turning his back on America storyline was. Mm-hmm. And then I guess 
uh, get Dave Meltzer and uh, anybody that, that was watching at the time would say, like, you know, would subscribe to what you were saying, that there's no way they were going to fill 100,000 seats with this car. I mean, let's be honest. In 1991, Sergeant Slaughter going in as your main event is not going to draw 100,000 people. to that way of thinking as well. John, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, I too heard these rumors on, on um, something to wrestle with Bruce Prichard to Conrad Thompson. Shout out to Conrad Thompson. He was a guest on the Hubbard Wrestling Weekly podcast way back when this show got started. He kind of helped this thing get jump-started. But you're right, John. Like, you know, WrestleMania 7, I opened up the show tonight talking about how historic the show was. And it was. Don't get me wrong. It was historic for different reasons. But... Filling 100,000 people with Sergeant Slaughter as your main event definitely probably wasn't going to happen. Um, I lend myself more to the way of thinking as well that they probably could not fill the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. I think they were feeling themselves a little bit, John. I think they were coming off WrestleMania 3. I think they were coming off WrestleMania 6. They're filling these massive venues. They're like, hey, let's go for 100,000 people. Maybe uh, Vince and whoever the powers that be over there in WWE bit off a little bit more than they can chew. John, and then we'll get down into the parameters of the card because I'm already having fun, brother. I appreciate this. Um, <laughs> no problem. No doubt, bro. Like, I heard, you know, we're, we're wrestling historians, we're journalists, we're, we're, we're students of the game. Warrior Hogan, too, was, was in the works. It, it was rumored to be a possibility. Obviously, that did not happen. Um, that might have sold out the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. I, I mean, that, that, that sells. Am I right? I think, I think you could have, I just don't know, I mean, I guess you would keep, you could keep them both as spaces, mm-hmm. and go into it like that, but it would also be fun if you turned a uh, warrior heel, I mean, that, that could have revitalized this entire reign. I agree, I agree, but as history would show us, um, that would not be the case, the Ultimate Warrior would lose the belt to Sergeant Slaughter, they would play up 
the uh, Iraqi sympathizer angle, as you talked about, John, uh, throughout the remainder of 1990 going into 1991. WrestleMania season was upon us. That was before the time when Royal Rumble automatically determined who would be the number one contender. Uh, Hogan did win the Royal Rumble that night that Sergeant Slaughter won the title from the Warrior, but it would be announced about a month later on Saturday night's main event that Hogan would indeed challenge Sergeant Slaughter for the title. So the stage was set for a super duper patriotic edition of WrestleMania uh, from the Los Angeles Memorial Sports Arena. And, uh, you know, we, we set the table. So now we're going to go down the parameters of the, the lineup. For the second consecutive year, John, uh, the Brooklyn Brawler opens up the show in a dark match, uh, this time against Coco Beware. Yeah, it's crazy because the previous year he opened up the show in a dark match for WrestleMania Six. man. It was against Pretty Paul Roma. Uh, Coco Beware opened up WrestleMania 6, but this year Coco, unfortunately for him, doesn't make the card, but he's in the dark match. Uh, for what it's worth, Coco Beware did defeat Brooklyn Brawler. That doesn't necessarily count as a WrestleMania win because it wasn't on the show. They didn't really play up the pre-show or there was, a, you know, they don't, they never really aired these matches. So it's not like you could say, you know, um, just like, you know, now with the kickoff show, if you win a kickoff match, that technically is a WrestleMania win. I don't count kickoff matches as WrestleMania wins. Do you? No, not at all. I, I prefer, um, you know, just having the dark match for the live crowd to get that man and then the people who bought the pay-per-view. Remember you used to have like a little, half hour preview over on your cable thing. Oh, just, you know, John, I loved it. I mean, that was fun. John, I loved it. The 30-minute countdown was unbelievable. Yeah. Sean Mooney or, or, or uh, Mean Gene counting it down, it, it got me so amped up, bro. But, um... And I think we lose that now because now it's more of like, kind of like an ESPN panel, uh, talking heads, and then they go to some of these video clips, and then they do the matches... But then you watch these matches, and it's in front of an empty crowd because the people aren't even sitting down yet. They're buying food and merchandise. Exactly. And, and, like, for instance, just usually for example, so we don't want to get too far off track, but I'm loving the point you're bringing up because Nice, nice ended up winning the uh, Cruiserweight title at this year's WrestleMania kickoff, and he's talking about how this is his WrestleMania moment, and I'm like, dude, like, it's your WrestleMania kickoff moment. It's not your WrestleMania moment. <laughs> That's a good point. But nonetheless, we move on. Uh, the main card opened up with the Rockers, Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty against the Barbarian and Haku with the you know, legendary Bobby the Brain Heat and God rest his soul in the Haku and Barbarian's corner. Um, let's talk about the Rockers for a little bit, man. I mean, obviously, we know what would happen later on in the year going into 92 uh, where the Rockers would break up on the barbershop. I know you studied this show preparing for, for this podcast. I really appreciate it. But you're also familiar with the show in general, John. I, I found some some tidbits from this match that kind of hindsight being 2020 showed Shawn Michaels in a little bit of a different light. Did you notice Michael's swagger was a little bit different? His walk was a little bit different. His movements were a little bit different. His his interaction was the crowd with the crowd was a little bit different during this match. He was still baby faced. But it just seemed like maybe the wheels were turning and Shawn Michaels was starting to figure out how good he was and maybe he didn't need Marty Jannetty. Did you pick up on that during this match? I noticed that. I, I, I absolutely noticed that. And 
I'm sure maybe, you know, even Vince McMahon probably, probably knows that. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Vince watches WrestleMania a bit closer than those shows. And uh, he obviously had Michael's tab to be, uh, you know, one of the next great guys. Absolutely. The Barbarian and Haku was kind of like a makeshift tag team. They weren't on the level of the Brain Busters from 88, 89, or the Colossal Connection from 90. The Barbarian and Haku were just two members of the Heenan family thrown together. Um, you can kind of see the writing on the wall that the Rockers would go over in this match. Excellent showing athletically for the Rockers. The Barbarian and Haku played their roles perfectly. What did you think about this match and how it uh, worked out scientifically and, and psychologically for the crowd and people watching on pay-per-view? I thought it was a very good opener. I think putting the Rockers to open any show back then was a smart decision. I mean, they were one of the best tag teams of all time. But specifically at this time, I mean, you look at tag team wrestling in the WWF at the time, you know, Barbarian, like what you said, Barbarian and Haku, Big 15, more of a brawling power. Um, kind of too, like, does, really, because it's not like people were really scared of them. And, and it's not like they were very exciting to watch, but they did look like they could put a pounding on you, and of course they got the from the brain. But yeah, I think that this was a good opener, it was a good match, and I mean, I wouldn't, it, it, to me, it doesn't add to Michael's legend as Mr. WrestleMania, mm-hmm. but he was obviously on his way to that. No doubt, and you know something, I, I, again, being students of the game, I know the history, and I know you know the history. The Rockers were 0-2 at WrestleMania to this point. They lost to the Twin Towers at 5. They lost to the Orient Express at 6. So this was, you know, Marty Jannetty and Shawn Michaels' first win at WrestleMania. And uh, unfortunately for all of... Well, I'll speak for myself. I don't know how you feel about the Rockers, but I love the Rockers. And uh, unfortunately for a lot of us, this would be the Rockers' first and only uh, WrestleMania win as they would break up about 8 months later. But uh, a really excellent showing. How did you how did you feel about that uh, drop kick? followed by a crossbody to win the match by the Rockers. I love it. I, I think, you know, it really set the way for, for some of the moves that we see today, some of the tag team moves. There's, there's a lot more cool combinations that happen today, especially on the independent level. Mm-hmm. But I think the Rockers certainly influenced, you know, generations with, with, with tag team moves just like that. Couldn't agree more, man. Couldn't agree more. So the Rockers win their first and only WrestleMania match as a team. Uh, we we know that uh, you know Shawn Michaels was going to win many WrestleMania matches. Marty Jannetty not so much, but Marty Jannetty is a former tag team champion and Intercontinental champion. You have to say his career was a success, but when you put it next to Shawn Michaels, obviously we know who the star of that team would turn out to be, and the Heartbreak Kid would go on to much bigger and better things moving forward. Um, we move down the parameters of the of the card to match number three, technically number three after the dark match, but number two on pay per view. The former Intercontinental Champion, Texas Tornado, going up against the Canadian Strongman Dino Bravo with Jimmy Hart in his corner. Um, again, a match kind of thrown together, I think. You know, we all know the main events. I say that main events, plural, of this show. Certainly, Tornado and Bravo was not one of those. But how'd you feel about the match? Um, I'm not going to lie, I thought it was a little clunky. No, I agree. I mean, I'm not a you know professor. There's many, many people that are. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, you know, it, it, I recommend this website. I don't know if you ever checked it out. It's called Scott's Log of Doom. Okay. They uh they, they do a lot of this kind of stuff. They do a lot of wrestling reviews. A lot of just old, you know, kind of like this era, the Hulkamania era. And uh, there's a guy there on their on their comment section 
that every, 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 you know, doesn't matter what the topic is, he brings it back to Dino Bravo, and his line is, Dino Bravo sucks. <laughs> As a fan, uh, I mean, Dino Bravo, I mean, I don't think anyone can name their favorite Dino Bravo match. You know, I don't think he was that type of wrestler. He wasn't. He uh, wasn't. He got the rope from having, you know, like earthquake with him and Jimmy Hart with him. I just, I just don't know. I, I honestly don't know why he wants to be such a push uh, in the WWF, especially at this time. But I thought that Tony Tornado, you know, obviously he came off his up on the side of the lane, beat his side down the card a little bit. But uh, you know, I thought he looked good, but the match itself overall, uh, I'll take a hard pass. You know, you talk about. The tornadoes, uh, Carrie Von Eric sliding down the car. There's no doubt that that was the case, man. That's a very astute observation on your part. You know, it, it just goes to show that, you know, as good as Carrie Von Eric was, the former NWA world champion, it is what it is. Uh, he defeated Ric Flair. Uh, but it really showed that his Intercontinental Championship win really was a fill-in role for when Brutus Beefcake got hurt. Not saying I'm the biggest Brutus Barber Beefcake fan, but... Uh, Brutus Beefcake was slotted to win that Intercontinental Championship the previous summer at SummerSlam in Philadelphia. The Tornado kind of got his opportunity to be IC champion, but nothing really came of it. Mr. Perfect would win the title back. And, uh, you know, he made it to WrestleMania. Hey, that's a great thing. Um, but, you know, he, he would win the match, but nothing spectacular. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It was just there, I guess, to give... You know, these guys' spot on, on WrestleMania, which I did want to mention. You know, these days everyone complains about how many matches are on the card and how long it goes. You know, this was a four. I mean, if, if you count the dark match, it was 15 matches, but for those watching at home, this was a 14 match card, but it didn't feel like it. You know, I mean, I thought it, it moved at a pretty good pace. It did, it did, and it certainly wasn't a seven hour pay per view. My God. So, yes, you're 100% right, John. And at the end of the day, 15 matches or not, it definitely came across or 14 matches on pay-per-view, as you said, it came across that it was it was being presented in a way that the time was going on along nicely, and you didn't feel like you were in quicksand, as you can feel sometimes watching a seven-hour pay-per-view like we watched back this past April at WrestleMania 34 or 35. It, you know, it, it just, it's, it's a bit much, man. Absolutely. So, the Texas Tornado is victorious in his WrestleMania debut against Dino Bravo, a man who had a WrestleMania win at WrestleMania uh, 5 against, uh, oh my goodness, against Ron Garvin. He was victorious and would lose to Hacksaw at WrestleMania 6. So this would be his second consecutive WrestleMania loss. It's kind of funny. Like I don't even consider Ron Garvin to be in the WWF at this time, but but I guess uh, that was what, only, only a two years prior? No, you know what? And it, it's really a shame because... Your, your point is so valid because Vince, as, as infinitely wise as he is when it comes to this business, and God knows I would, even if I worked for him for a day, I, I think I would gain so much knowledge, but he really made WCW or NWA guys seem really small. I mean, Ron Garvin defeated Ric Flair for the NWA World Championship. Texas Tornado defeated Ric Flair for the NWA World Championship. I mean, and look where they're at at WrestleMania. It, it's it's really, I mean, Dino Dino Bravo is facing the Texas Tornado. By this time, Ron Garver is not even with the company anymore. It, it's crazy. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think you could argue that the only 
NWA guy that Vince really um, put a spotlight on and presented in the same manner that that person was previously was Ric Flair. I think he's the only guy, I mean, he was a former world champ in WWE uh, twice. You know, he won that Rumble. Um, you know, he headlined at WrestleMania. He didn't main event it, but he headlined at WrestleMania. So I think he was really the only, I mean, you know, Dusty came in with the polka dots and uh, Harley Race became the king and you know, little, little tornado and, and so I think Flair's the only guy that really came over and was still treated as a star. I agree. Flair was the only one that was given that respect. And uh, you mentioned earlier something to wrestle with with Bruce Pritchard and, and Conrad Thompson. And Conrad asked Bruce, hey, listen, was the polka dots on Dusty Rhodes a rip? You know, because Dusty Rhodes was a serious, real deal, three-time world champion in NWA. And he came over and... I would never, God rest his soul, call Dusty Rhodes a joke. But Dusty Rhodes was playful and polka dotty and funny in WWE. He wasn't the NWA champion. So to your point, I couldn't agree more. It definitely seemed like the NWA guys were kind of giving the short end of the stick. With the exception of Ric Flair. And, I mean, outside of world titles, I guess you could say that the Horsemen, a.k.a. the Brain Busters, were given a decent shot by being the tag team champions. They defeated Demolition, but... Other than that, not so much. Absolutely, that's a good point. I forgot about that. No, I'm, yeah, even so, even so, I mean, that's a little, that's a blip on the radar. But overall, NWA guys, but you know what? It wouldn't surprise me that Vince would want to downplay the NWA because that's who they were going up against. But for WrestleMania Seven, uh, the Texas Tornado defeats Dino Bravo. Then you have a match, Power versus Power, and I really enjoyed this match. This is one of the preliminary matches non-title matches, non-storyline matches that did actually make a little bit of sense. The Warlord was the master of the, the self-proclaimed master of the Full Nelson, going up against, you know, by many accounts, one of the most strong guys in the history of the business, uh, the British Bulldog. And the whole storyline behind this match, a little bit makeshift, thrown together kind of a deal, but it did make sense. The whole idea was can the British Bulldog defeat the Warlord, and can the British Bulldog break the Warlord's uh, full Nelson? Um, the Doctor style, style Slick was in the Warlord's corner. John, tell us about what you thought about this match. I thought this match was a little bit better than even they probably thought it would be putting it together. I completely agree, and I'll go one further. I think this is Warlord's best match of all time. Wow, okay. I really enjoyed it. I, I thought that, uh, like you said, a good powered match. They, they, they played into the story and that's what I really I mean that's what wrestling should be is when you got the storyline going that the actual match plays into it you know instead of like for example uh, the Stark Street fight with the headlock you know that doesn't make any sense right but what they were doing in this match absolutely I, I enjoyed it I thought David Boy did a great job and uh, just, just something else it's kind of funny when you think about it you know you're saying how Wardlord was the master of the full Nelson when you go back in uh, WWE history and you look at how many guys that the full Nelson was, was kind of their thing? I think it was, uh, right, Hercules or, and Billy Jack Haynes uh, a few years before that. And then everyone probably remembers these days Chris Masters. People would try to break the master lock. You're 100% right. That's like, you know, like, like an angle that they keep coming back to. You know, I, I think the full Nelson is such a time-honored move that they want to, you know, give reverence to it. But I couldn't agree more. Matter of fact... <clears throat> To give even more credit to your to your astute point, WrestleMania three was the match of the full Nelson. That Hercules 
uh, match against Billy Jack Haynes was the match in the Battle of the Full Nelson. So you're 100% right. Okay. You know, I, sometimes I kind of wish they, they would do that again today. I mean, make, make some of these holds, especially some of these traditional holds, mean something again. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think it's a it's a time order thing, but it also has to be done in good taste. You know, you don't want to insult the, the fans' intelligence. But this match definitely lived up to the hype. You know why? Because there was no hype. <laughs> it was no hype. It was no build. <laughs> but it definitely oversold and it, it overcame the, uh, I guess you could say, the opening match, you know, opening fourth of the card kind of vibe that it had. It was a throw together, but it made sense. And um, the British Bulldog would eventually become victorious. The psychology of the match, how do you feel about it? I like this. I like the psychology. I think that Bulldog is an underrated uh, wrestler when it comes to that. I know a lot of people think of him with, um, you know, that big SummerSlam match against Bret Hart, and they credit Bret, saying the Bulldog was initially compete, and Bret really carried him through it. But Bulldog's been in, in too many good matches for him not to be a good wrestler. You know what I mean? Like, th- right. there's no way he got that lucky all the time with other with, with better people in the ring with him. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. So the British Bulldog is uh, victorious against the Warlord. Uh, to my colleague, John, uh, of the Wrestling Estates Point, this would kind of set the stage for him going on a little bit of a run, which would lead to the following summer where he would uh, meet and defeat Bret Hart about you know 18 months later at SummerSlam, and that would be his uh, biggest run in the company until he would return in 1994. Uh, as WrestleMania Seven would continue... Our first championship would be on the line. The team that I consider to be the greatest tag team of all time, uh, I've made no bones about saying that I feel that the Hart Foundation, uh, the original uh, Bret Hart, Jim Neidhart team was was just, I mean, you, you draw up a perfect tag team, and that's what the Hart Foundation was. That's how I see them. And they went up against the Nasty Boys. And I know I'm going to kind of seem like, John, that I'm kind of, uh, contradicting myself here, but I thought the right team won this match. I think that the Nasty Boys had the momentum. I think the Hart Foundation were on its way to breaking up. We know that Bret Hart would go for his first Intercontinental Championship that summer against Mr. Perfect. So in order to go for that, back in those days, a tag champ wasn't going to be a singles champ, so they had to break the team up. The Nasty Boys were on a roll, and they walked into WrestleMania and they shocked the world. Give us your recollection of the tag team championship match in Los Angeles at WrestleMania Seven. Well, I agree with you that the right team won, and I think that the Nasties did have a lot of momentum. You had Jimmy Hart playing playing a huge role, and, uh, and, and and it was a good match. Now, now we also have to remember that the Hart Foundation was probably going to split up way before I don't know, way before, but before this, when they had. Um, when they were supposed to you know, lose the titles to the Rockers on that Saturday night's main event, when the ring broke and the match never aired, right. so they kept the title. So, you know, looking into this, I mean, it seems like it was just inevitable that the Hart Foundation was going to lose. I mean, you know, we didn't know that watching it at the time, but it was inevitable that the Hart Foundation was going to lose, and Brett was going to go onto his path, and Nyhart would do whatever he was going to do. And it seemed that the Nancy, I mean, I don't know if there was any other team at the time, that, that was ready to, to take the ball and run with it. Maybe the Legion of Doom, but uh, it wasn't you know typical for a face versus face team at that time. Mm-hmm. So I think the Nancy's were, were the only option. 
I, I think you're right on the money. And you know what? I'm glad you brought up the Legion of Doom. We'll talk about them a little later as they went up against Power and Glory. But on a recent edition of Superstars, before WrestleMania 7, there was a battle royal to determine who would be the number one contenders for the Tag Team Championship. And the Nasty Boys won. The Legion of Doom were supposed to win, you know, according to the fans, the way the storyline played out. The Power and Glory helped the Legion of Doom get thrown over the top rope, which led the, you know, Nasty Boys winning the match. And the Nasty Boys kind of backdoored their way into this title shot, which I think was brilliant. This was back when storylines, John, were done properly because it went the way it was supposed to go. The Nasty Boys were not supposed to be there. The Nasty Boys were not supposed to win that match against all the other teams. It was supposed to be the Legion of Doom. So when the Nasty Boys kind of backdoor their way into this title shot, it gives that little bit of doubt where it's like, okay, the Hart Foundation should win, which adds to the luster of the Nasty Boys walking out the champions. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. That's a great point, great analysis. And I, I, I also agree with you that they don't do things like that anymore, and they should. I mean, you look just like, um, I don't know, I, I didn't watch Raw uh, last week, but when the Revival, uh, I guess they, they either won the titles or they had a title shot, whatever happened, mm-hmm. Uh, they did absolutely nothing to earn that. They lost their previous match. You know, it, 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 I don't know, it, it, it takes away from the sport element of it, the logic element of it. I mean, here, there's a big battle royal. Nasty boys somehow, some way, pull up the victory. Now they got the momentum. Uh, and, then, and then, once again, they, by hook or by crook, they win the tag titles. I mean, it just makes sense. It's just building momentum, telling the story, that constant flow that makes you want to get invested in characters, and see what happens next. And, uh, and, and, you know, this era is known for that. I mean, this is, I don't know, I would say from, what, 85 to 92, the end of 92, was a bit of, before the Attitude Era. And, uh, and, and, you know, that's just an example of why it was so fun to be a fan. It really was. And you know something? Even as a youth at the time, I was very young, kindergarten, first grade kind of kind of vibe at that time, but... I just knew that it was something I was going to be interested in for the rest of my life. And I'm almost pained by this. I don't want to go off on a tangent here, John, but I got to be honest with all my listeners and with you. You know, the product today, I mean, AEW, thank God for the emergence of AEW. Thank God for the, uh, it seems like the resurgence and the improved quality of Impact and MLW. And many of these organizations are stepping their game up. But when it comes to WWE... The current product is so stale, and it's so unfortunate because they know how to get things done. They know how to uh, have pro wrestling be what it was, but for some reason they just won't go there. And I think because pro wrestling has become an ugly word in WWE. Stanford, Connecticut doesn't like the word uh, pro wrestling. They like sports entertainment, and I think that's part of the problem. I agree. I completely agree. You know, we'll completely forget about WrestleMania stuff. Yeah. But, but, uh, but you're right, man. It, they, they have. And, you know, at the Wrestling Estate, we do our best to cover every promotion, uh, and, and especially the independents. But I will say that Impact and MLW are my two favorite on TV, so I'm glad you gave them a shout-out. No doubt, man. Very good assessment on your part. The Nasty Boys are the new World Tag Team Champions. They would hold those titles to the following summer when they would lose them to... The Legion of Doom. Uh, the sixth match of the night, fifth on pay-per-view, would be Jake the Snake Roberts 
versus Rick DeMarto Martel in a blindfold match. I'm not really a big fan of gimmick matches, but I thought this one was well done. Very cool that back-to-back matches, high-profile matches on this show. Uh, the next match would be Undertaker versus Jimmy Snuka. I thought that they could have snuck that before the Jake Roberts Martel match. But I'm glad they didn't. You had these two high-profile matches back-to-back, the World Tag Team titles followed by the blindfold match. And, John, when you talk about storylines, my goodness, the Jake Roberts, Rick the Model <laughs> Martel, arrogant, shot in the eye. I mean, man, like, they did this one great. And even though anybody who had half a brain knew that those blindfolds were not really blindfolds, it was still awesome. Am I right? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I love the storyline. Uh, the, the match, I, I think you can only watch it one time. I think it loses its cluster on repeat dealings because there's not a lot going on. I mean, if you were there in the crowd, because it, it, was, it was probably one of the, the first crowd interactive matches. I mean, they're, they're relying on the crowd to tell them where their opponent is. It was very inventive, very innovative, and a, and a great idea. And it also shows just how great of a... Psychology that Jake the Snake was, but uh, I mean, in, in terms of action, you know, it, this this leaves a lot to be desired. But but uh, something else that is lacking today there was a proper payoff, and the fans got what they wanted, and it happened at WrestleMania where all the proper payoffs are supposed to happen. So in, in that case, I enjoyed the match. No doubt, man. No doubt. I like the psychology of it. I mean, like you said, there was not a lot of action, but I thought that was. Part of the charm of the match, and I know charm is kind of a weird word to use when you're talking about a wrestling event, but I thought that was part of the charm of the match. I thought the fact that Rick Martel thought that the ring post was a person and he swung on it and, you know, made it hurt his (laughs) hands, and Jake the Snake Roberts was using the crowd to kind of track down Rick Martel, and then for some reason, even though it's as an adult, you laugh at it, but when he hits the DDT, he can't find Martel to cover him, even though Martel is in the same place he dropped him at. It was just, it was, <laughs> it was just, it was just funny and innovative, and, and I thought it was cool, and it was a good climax to what was done on the Brother Love Show when Martel injured Jake and going through all the vignettes of Jake going to the doctor's office, very reminiscent of what happened with Macho Man and, and Steamboat at WrestleMania Three, where they were going to the doctor and giving updates on Jake's eye, and it, it was, it was pretty cool, and it would last uh, up until that night. Um, the whole Jake Roberts blindness thing uh, ended when he won at WrestleMania 7. But I thought from the time it happened, which was, my goodness, like the fall of 1990, through the Survivor Series, through the Royal Rumble, all the way through WrestleMania, I thought it was done properly and I thought it was fun. You know, and, and, and we got the payoff we were looking for, right? We did. And I think that, you know, you could say that this was Rick Martel's WWE, I, I think that his character was at its best. I, I love the, the model gimmick, and I think that, uh, you know, I know he went on to win, I guess, the Intercontinental title, and he was in strike force before that, but I think, you know, for a singles run, this, this Roberts rivalry has to be the top of his career. I couldn't agree more. I thought the model was an excellent character. I thought the model actually, I'm going to tell you something. We all know, uh, well, most of us know, I know you know, and many of us know that who really, really study this game that uh, Martel was a former AWA champion. But I think Rick the Model Martel, the Model Martel, could have been world champion. I That's how good he was. He was always excellent in the ring. I thought the Model character was awesome. Even as a youth, even as a youth, I thought the Model character 
was fun. He was arrogant. He was full of himself. But you know what, John? He was good. He was. He absolutely was. And, as, you know, you saying he could have been a world champion. If he... I mean, I don't, obviously he wasn't going to win the world title during the Hogan era. Right. But if he had hung on and, and the character maintained the heat that it had for another year or so, I mean, heading into the Bret Hart, Yokozuna era, for sure Marcel could have been on top. He, he definitely could have been a top heel. He could have been uh, anything, really. He could have took the, you know, right after Flair when Flair was on top. No doubt, no doubt. So, Jake Roberts is victorious against Rick Martel in the blindfold match, which leads us to a very cool uh, situation. We wouldn't know how important it would be till many years later, but this would be 1-0 for The Undertaker at WrestleMania. We wouldn't start counting for many years, uh, for many years until uh, maybe about, he got 10 matches in with Ric Flair at WrestleMania 18, but it would be 1-0. Uh, the Undertaker with Paul Bearer would go up against the legendary Jimmy Superfly Snuka, and The Undertaker would win with the Tombstone. Take us back to 1991. Take us back to the aura, to the, uh, the mystique of The Undertaker. And we didn't know how big it would turn out to be, but did you have a little bit of an insight? Did you think that this guy might be important moving down the line? Oh, absolutely. I mean, as soon as he came in, just a few months prior to Survivor Series, he was important. You know, if you go back and you watch Survivor Series 1990, Teddy DiAppi brings out his mystery partner, and it's this huge, hulking, lurking, you know, he looks like a, like a cowboy meets the Grim Reaper, and he comes out there and he slaughters. Most of the nation could be there. It might have been Snooker. I think might have been on that team, too. But immediately, he's just trying to be this monster that is a force to be reckoned with. And, and really, that never stopped. I mean, Taker, you know, uh, what, a few weeks ago, he competed on the show. He was still presented as a, as a big deal. And this uh, this match was still good. I loved it. It's actually, I know, you know, in, in terms of work rate or whatever else people judge matches by, probably doesn't hold up. But I loved uh, the Taker destroying him. I thought it was great. It was the becoming of a new era. And, uh, and I really loved it. No doubt. And what a great uh, choice to pass the torch with. I mean, Jimmy Snuka was never world champion, but Jimmy Snuka was honored as a legend for many years before that. He wasn't the Jimmy Snuka of 1984. He wasn't the Jimmy Snuka that jumped off the cage onto Don Morocco at Madison Square Garden. But he was still Jimmy Snuka. And you put him up against The Undertaker, and as you stated accurately, he gets destroyed by The Undertaker. It showed the world, hey, you know what? This guy is a big deal. We don't know how big of a deal he's going to be. We certainly don't know that he's going to go 22-2 and two or whatever it is, 24-2 and two at WrestleMania. But we do know that this guy is going to be somebody important. And uh, The Undertaker made a big name for himself on this night. He definitely started that ball rolling at, at Survivor Series, as you mentioned. And it was off to the races not long after that as he would go up against Hogan. After Survivor Series, very short title reign, but it didn't matter because all that was was to let the world know, hey, this guy, Mark Calloway, this guy that you know as me, Mark Callis from WCW, this guy is for real. And The Undertaker is going to be around for a long, long time. And my God, 28 years later, he's still main eventing pay-per-views. I don't know how I feel about that, especially after what we saw against Goldberg, <laughs> but he's still main eventing pay-per-views. So, the Undertaker victorious in the sixth match of WrestleMania. 
pay-per-view 1991. Up next, uh, the highlight of the evening outside of the world title. Man, um, what can you say about Warrior and Savage? First of all, Savage was on top of his game. He had never been more charismatic, never been so good. He, even as world champion, um, which was a historic year-long run from 89, from 88 to 89. Um, I still, I think this year, I think 90 to 91, him being the macho king, him being with Sherry, him being back as a, as a heel, he, he was just so good. And his quest to become the WWE champion at all costs, to take down the Warrior at all costs, to cost him the title at, at the Royal Rumble, I, I just thought Savage was on top of his game. We talked earlier about it, John, uh, the Ultimate Warrior. It just never congealed. It just never got to the point where they felt that the Warrior could be the champion for a long time. Not saying he wasn't champion. He was champion for about seven or eight months. But it wasn't what I'm sure they thought it would be after WrestleMania six. So now you got a career match. And I want you to take the, the reins on this one and just go, John. I mean, epic match <laughs> in the history of WWE. For sure. It was uh, probably Warrior's best match. I agree with you that Savage was, was on fire. I mean, I'll, I'll just go so far as to say from as soon as he turned on Hogan um, on that, either the main event or Saturday night's main event, whatever that was, mm. uh, through this, and then, you know, uh, well, I don't really know. A spoiler alert for everybody. Savage uh, loses this match, mm-hmm. but his retirement as any wrestling retirement, does not last long. He's back in the ring by, uh, I guess, the fall of 91, and he's in a hot, hot feud with Jake Snake Roberts, and that culminates somehow in Savage winning the world title, even though he retired the year before. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but, but this match itself, I mean, it's long, it's, it's, uh, it, it's a good, like, you know, the actual in-ring work, it's fantastic. You're, you're hooked into the drama, uh, both of these guys are busting out everything that they've got. They're letting it all hang out. And I think at the time, you know, you wouldn't have thought of the two of them because they were those two main event guys, and neither of them were particularly old. You know, Warrior came in in, in what, like 87, 88. Harris mm-hmm. came in around 85. But they didn't look old. They didn't act old. They were both on top. And, it, it, you know, it wasn't like we knew that one was leaving for another company or anything. It was really up in the air. And, uh, and, and the match itself was just uh, tremendous. It was tremendous. Savage getting five, flying out off the turf, could still not beat the Warrior. And, uh, and, and I mean, that, you know, it was almost like he was killing off his own finishing move. But, man, oh, man, this, this is something that everybody who hasn't seen it needs to go back and watch. In retrospect, it probably should have ended the show. Well, it definitely was the match of the night. I mean, the, back in those days, the world title was always going to end the show. But I'll tell you what, uh, bell to bell, Warrior and Savage was the match of the night. I couldn't agree more. Even the interjection of Sherry during the match, because Sherry would interject herself on numerous occasions. As you mentioned, the five, five macho man elbows off the top rope. Um, the only man in history to kick out of one of those elbows was Hogan. And he never got five in a row. But the Warrior got five in a row. Um, 
man, you want to talk about psychology, you want to talk about chemistry, you want to talk about giving the fans a story and being able to execute it to perfection. The Warrior, uh, I say he was never better than WrestleMania 6, but WrestleMania 7 was darn close. And the Macho Man just proved to me why, I, why I've always said he should be on the Mount Rushmore of WWE or wrestling period. Macho Man, as much as we revere Macho Man, John, as much as we respect Macho Man, God rest his soul, I think some of us forget about him when it comes to top five all time because you have the Hogans and you have the Undertakers and you have the HBKs and you have the Ric Flairs. But Macho Man was so darn good. Absolutely. And, and, you know, in terms of the ring, he was great. In terms of the microphone, he was great. His attire, his character, he was a, you know... He's a mainstream force. He did commercials. You could put him in any setting, and Macho Man thrived. And he just made baseball fun. He's a character that so many people adore, that so many people still go back and watch and love and revere. And uh, and, and I agree with you. He belongs on the on the Mount Rushmore for sure. For sure. That's what's up, man. So the Macho Man. As we all know, as history would show us, would lose the match to the Warrior after three consecutive uh, flying shoulder blocks. Those five elbows, somehow the Warrior in superhuman fashion kicks out of the fifth one and it leads to him uh, coming back and winning the match. Macho Man may have made a little bit of a strategic mistake because it looked like the Warrior was going to walk out. But, uh, you know, the, that double axe handle running against the ropes woke the Warrior up and he would end up dominating the remainder of the match. And that would lead to... One of the most historic moments in history of WWE. I think it's a really, it's a top five moment, period. Uh, and it has nothing to do with a punch being thrown or a kick being thrown. I mean, uh, Miss Elizabeth and, and Macho Man reunite. Uh, we're both men. We're not going to get too sentimental on this show. <laughs> but but please, if you would, just, just tell the people, because everybody knows how I feel about it. I, I was a big proponent of Macho Man and Liz getting back together. I love them. Obviously, as, as a kid, we didn't know um, the parameters of their real-life marriage pretty much being almost over. But, um, you know, just on a, on a sports entertainment wrestling standpoint, they were the perfect couple. Tell us, I guess, how the, the, the couple of, of wrestling, the first couple of wrestling reunited and how you think the fans and everybody responded to that? Well, uh, you know, obviously it started a couple of years before when uh, Macho Man, his jealousy, his, his paranoia that, that he always had because he always, you know, he didn't want uh, George Steele oogling over, over his precious, lovely Miss Elizabeth. He didn't want, you know, Mean Gene, you know, fervent on her or anything. He didn't want anybody getting too close. And, uh, you know, so, so we always had that for years. But then Hogan, then the Hulkster comes in there, and it was clear that the Hulkster had lust in his eyes. And if you go back and you watch the Mega, Power, Mega Powers uh, split, you will side with Macho Man. Everyone will side with Macho Man. The Hulkster, you know, Miss Elizabeth, she, she was gorgeous. Man. She was really like the only woman in the company at the time. Yes, she was. You were seeing on TV. Yeah. Miss Elizabeth so, was beautiful. Yes, she was. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and, and she was nice. She was gentle. She seemed like someone you'd want to hang out with, someone you'd want to get to know. And, you know, and obviously, the whole thing, it looked like he wanted not just sex, his woman as well. The Savage finally snapped. Elizabeth doesn't know what to do. She's not going to side with him. She's not going to side with Savage. She's not going to side with anyone. She leaves 
WWE, she's gone. She's off TV. So, Savage becomes the macho king. He finds a new woman. The sensational Sherry. Eric Burks, the beefcake, calls her Scary Sherry. And uh, they come in. They will reverse for a group. Leading up to this match against the Warrior. Now that Savage loses to Warrior, Sherry shows her true colors. She loses her meal ticket. Who's gonna, you know, accompany the room? Who's gonna win the title for her? Who's gonna make all this money? So she snaps, and credit has to be for this because, you know, I don't know who else she could have flown into this role to turn on Savage, who was one of the top villains in the company, but to immediately make him a sympathetic figure. I mean, Sherry was that good at being a heel, that good at being a, a witch, that she was able to make this movement work to get the fans who were just booing Macho Man. To get them now to side with him, and she starts stomping away on him. And of course, the lovely Elizabeth emerges from the crowd. The, the audience goes wild. She takes down uh, Sherry, and somehow, someway, uh, Macho and Liz reunite. And if you go back and watch, people are actually crying at a pro wrestling event. And, uh, and I agree with you, it is a top WrestleMania moment. And, and you could argue it's probably the best storyline that entire Savage Elizabeth art. From when they came into the company to this point, kind of the best storyline WWE has ever done. I couldn't agree more. The mega powers exploding leading into the split of Macho and Elizabeth leading into their reuniting is one of the greatest things I've ever seen on top. You know what? I was about to cut myself off because I'm not sure if I'm if I'm putting too much on it, but I, I think I'm accurate in what I'm about to say. I think the Macho Man Hulk Hogan you know, Randy Savage turning into retirement, turning into reuniting all the way to the marriage at SummerSlam. That's one of the greatest moments and greatest storylines in television, much less wrestling. Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, you could see something like that on one of these dramas, you know, on TV today. I mean, it was, it was that good. It was that rich. You believed in all the characters. You believed in their motivation. It felt real. I mean, what man hasn't felt a little bit of jealousy that someone was looking at his girl or someone was trying to steal her, you know, and, and what woman hasn't been uh, caught in the middle of all that? I mean, these were things that didn't seem, you know, this seemed something more of like an attitude arrow mm-hmm. type of story. Right. But, but, but that would have got too crazy. You know, that would have got uh, a little maybe too unrealistic. This was right on the money, and it's something they haven't been able to duplicate since. I agree. I agree. It was just it was just much watch, must watch television, whether it was on the good side, the Mega Powers being on the same side, whether it was them breaking up, whether it was Macho Man's pursuit of the title against the Warrior, the retirement, the re- reuniting with Elizabeth. It was it was just epic. And um, even though the Macho Man would lose his career, not lose his career as we talked about earlier, but lose his career at the time, uh, it really didn't matter because him and Elizabeth were back to be- back together and it seemed like all was right with the world. So. It, it was just amazing. So that was pretty much the main event of the first half of WrestleMania 7. They would go to the five-minute intermission from there. When they returned, they would have uh, a series of interviews. Um, Jake Roberts uh, with Alex Trebek. And, you know, it, it was really a cool thing. The Undertaker with Regis Feldman. It was it was cool. It was cool. And um, basically a, a spot where the new tag team champions, the Nasty Boys, were spilling champagne over Donald Trump's wife, Marla Maples. And... <laughs> it, it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun, and then not too long after that, the, the action would resume. Tenru and Kato would uh, go up against Demolition, Crush, and Smash. 
The significance of Crush and Smash, by the way, reunited with Mr. Fuji, is the fact that Axe would have left the company a little while previous to this. Um, Axe, um, the former co-holder of the Tag Team Championship on three occasions with Smash, would leave the company a lot long after the 1990 Survivor Series. It was written off of television as Jack Tunney, the kayfabe president of the company, uh, saying that due to uh, Demolition having three members, that one was going to be suspended indefinitely, that member would be smashed. In actuality, X just basically left WWE, so they had to write him off of television. And Smash and Crush would continue the Demolition or I should say carry the demolition mantle into WrestleMania 7, where they would lose. And um, there's not much to talk about in this match, John, but what I want to ask you is the significance, how you feel uh, this match played out, because it truly was the death nail of demolition, losing to these, even though Tenru and Kato were very big names in, in, in Japan, they, they were relatively unknown here in the States. So they come to the United States, they come to WrestleMania, they defeat the former three-time tag team champions, and Demolition is no more. So the historical significance of Demolition, uh, I guess you can go from you know their first title win or just talk about their significance in the business, and then, I don't know, maybe Legion of Doom comes along and maybe things change. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Max leaving was the nail in the coffin for them because, you know, it, the original member. I mean, Crush looked the part, but he, it just wasn't the same. I mean, he, even the theme song, yeah, here comes the yeah, here comes the smash. I mean, it, it was it was a good, you know, it was one of the best teams that, that they've ever had. It was a great package, great characters, and even though they received, you know, by the fans, some of the fans regarded them as Road Warrior knockoffs, you know, when the Legion of Doom came in there, it, it kind of felt that way to, you know, had lost its luster. I guess their big moment, you know, their, their big historic tag team title reign, that had happened a few years prior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, just the, uh, it was really hard to end up there. And, and nowadays, I mean, they're, they're going to really even be more lost in history because they're not in the WWE Hall of Fame. And they don't even have the claim of being the longest reigning tag team champions anymore. So uh, I think there is a fear there because everybody considers the Red Warriors to be the greatest tag team of all time. The, the argument for them is, is, is fading away as time goes on. I don't know. I, I do wonder in a few years if people are going to regard demolition as high as some of the people do now. I, I think that's a good question. I think at the end of the day, demolition was, was basically undercut. You know, demolition was rolling. They had won the tag team titles for the third time at WrestleMania 6. Sure, they lost them to the Hart Foundation at SummerSlam. But I think that they could have gained them back. I think they could have been the, t- the first team to ever win four tag belts, even though they were the first team to win ever, ever to win three tag belts. But my point is that they were rolling. And I love the dynamic of all three guys being with the company and all three guys being on the team. I think Axe had some health issues, which would eventually lead to him leaving, leaving the company. But, I mean, Crush was awesome. I think Crush was awesome. Let me clarify that. Crush was awesome as a physical uh, being. I mean, as as a promo, not so much. Um, little green in the ring, but Smash could have carried him. But as we know, Demolition would eventually break up. Crush would become Kona Crush. Smash would become the Repo Man. And Demolition would become a memory. So the last, 
my goodness, the last memory of demolition is them losing to two relative unknowns to the American fans at WrestleMania 7, and they would never be seen or heard from again as that particular team. It's pretty unfortunate for a team that I consider to be one of the greatest of all time. Absolutely. And it's funny to picture Smash as the repo, man. That, that always makes me laugh. Yeah, it, it's funny because it was so horrible. That's the problem. <laughs> So we move on to the Intercontinental Championship. In my opinion, one of the greatest one of the greatest Intercontinental Champions of all time. The only reason I say one of the greatest, I know I'm kind of hedging my bet here, but you got Bret Hart, you got Shawn Michaels, but man, Kurt Henning was so good. So Kurt Henning with Bobby the Brain Heenan, the perfect manager, going up against the big boss man. Before you talk about the outcome of the match, I want you to talk about the legacy of Ray Trailer, the big boss man in WWE. Um, he would never be a champion, unfortunately. Uh, he would never be, oh, excuse me, he would be a tag champ, he would be a hardcore champ. But what I mean is, he would never be world champion, he would never be intercontinental champion, as we know after the you know conclusion of this match. But he went into WrestleMania 7 red hot. But disqualification win instead of a clean win, talk about it. Well, Andre's history with Mahinan and, and 
Did you cry or slap at him? And, uh, and kicking him off the root court. So even though Andre was in uh, some corruption that, you know, wouldn't make it, uh, I guess that uh, was what his last WrestleMania appearance, I think. Um, you know, it, it was definitely cool to have him there. I mean, that's the type of legend appearance that you're going to see at WrestleMania. And, and just him coming out there and supporting the boss man gave him a little, little bit of a rub to, to, to get boss man that much more over with the crowd. Agreed, agreed. It wouldn't really lead to much more, unfortunately, but at the time, you thought the boss man might go on a little bit of a run, but he would pretty much, I mean, he would be the member of the Hulkamaniacs team at Survivor Series the previous year. He would go on to be team with Team Legion of Doom at that following year's Survivor Series. You had his rivalry with the Mountie to see who was a true Lord and Order of the WWE. Um... I don't know, the situation with Nails at Survivor Series 92, it, it just never panned out for him being a big, big star. This WrestleMania 7 match, you could argue, was the biggest match of his career. Am I right? Absolutely. Okay, so next up, after the big boss man's disqualification winning over Kurt Henning, Mr. Perfect, comes the man who had uh, the summer of his life the previous summer. 1990 was the summer of the earthquake. Uh, he destroyed Hulk Hogan. He was in a high-profile match at a pay-per-view with Hulk Hogan. Um, he, he was on a roll. Um, was the finalist uh, that following January in the Royal Rumble before being eliminated by Hogan. Notice that the key word here is Hogan. It seemed like Hogan uh, dominated Earthquake, even though Earthquake was main eventing with Hogan all over the country. He would go into WrestleMania against Greg DeHamel Valentine. I think the only storyline, if you want to call it a storyline, was the fact that Greg Valentine's former manager, Jimmy Hart, was with the Earthquake. If you got anything on this match, John, you can give it to me, but it was pretty much a squash. Am I right? Absolutely. The only thing that I will say is it's how many managers were involved. I mean, it's all, just about every match had somebody at ringside whether it was a traditional manager or just somebody accompanying them. And, uh, and I don't know, it's just another fun thing to see of, you know, how important managers were to, to the whole show back then as compared to today when, when there's still some, but they don't seem to mean as much um, as they did back then. The only exception being in MLW where Selena De Laurenta has kind of taken over as, as in the body Heenan role as the top heel authority force in there. And I don't know. I just I always both managers. I love seeing how many people are involved in them. No doubt. Shout out to Selena De Laurenta. She was a guest on my show as well. She is so gorgeous, but more importantly, she is so talented. Shout out to Selena De Laurenta. Um, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna take that challenge, man. I, I want to look back on the parameters of the card and just kind of go on your point because I think your point is really valid. Match one, Bobby Heenan was in the Barbarian and Haku's corner. Match two, Jimmy Hart was in Dino Bravo's corner. Match three, the uh, Slickster was in Warlord's corner. The Nasty Boys had Jimmy Hart. Uh, no manager for Roberts and Martel, but The Undertaker had Paul Bearer against Snuka. Sherry was in the Macho Man's corner. Mr. Fuji was with Demolition. Bobby Heenan was with Mr. Perfect. Jimmy Hart was with The Earthquake. Slick was with Power and Glory. Piper was with Virgil. Uh, Jimmy Hart was with the Mountie, and General Adnan was with Slaughter. Very astute out of the observation on your part, man. Well, uh, you know, it's just, just something, that, uh, something that I loved about back then. You know, I just, I, I kind of, I got this. I wish there was more of No doubt, man, no doubt. And we're talking about some of the greatest managers of all time. Slick and obviously Bobby Heenan were awesome. Jimmy Hart was awesome. General Adnan doesn't really go into that category, but... 
he served his purpose. <laughs> you know, he served his purpose at the time, right? That's right. So the earthquake uh, gives the earthquake to uh, Greg Valentine to to win his first WrestleMania. Actually, his second WrestleMania match. He was successful the previous year against the Mighty Hercules. Um, speaking of the Mighty Hercules. He has now formed a team managed by Slick with Pretty Paul Roma, a team that I really, oh, John, 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 I really thought the power and glory were going to be something special, especially after what they did the previous SummerSlam against the Rockers. But it never, ever panned out. And Wrestle, you want to talk about, (laughs) you want to talk about how the nail in the (laughs) coffin for demolition was losing to Cato and Tenru? If there was ever a nail in the coffin, it would be what happened to Power and Glory at WrestleMania 7. Tell the people your recollection of this 59-second squashing. <laughs> well, I, I will say that I didn't see it coming. I know that the Legion of Doom were uh, super popular and, and were given a big push, and obviously they were going to hurt people. But I agree with you. I thought Power and Glory were going to be a top team, that they were going to be a force. I mean, looking back, I, I actually think in retrospect, they're even better than what we thought at the time. Right. Because they really weren't pre- presented, you know? Like, they weren't presented like the Heart Foundation or the Legion of Doom or, or Demolition or anything like that. They, they were kind of seen as an, an undercard team. Mm-hmm. But they were fun to watch. They were good. They looked good. They, they had matching attire. They had a cool finish. They, uh, I don't know, they were... I don't know, I just, I, I just, I really like them, just like you. Yeah, you had the slickster in their corner, you had the slickster in their corner. Yeah, it's, it's just, uh, and I don't know what it is. I, you know, looking back, it's not like heading into 92, there were a ton of great teams that they would be competing against. I mean, I would rather watch them over Money Inc. or the Natural Disasters or yes. the Bushwhackers. Yes, So I don't, I don't know why they didn't get the spotlight. But, but you hit the nail on the head, man. It, this really did uh, just cut them off. Just cut off all their momentum. And, uh, I, you know, they were just seen as fodder for the incoming Legion of Doom. No doubt, man. And, and to your point, not only were they, they good. I mean, the powerplex was awesome, as you mentioned. But, like, again, SummerSlam 90, they destroyed Shawn Michaels' knee in a victory, right? Survivor Series 1990, they won. They won the Survivor Series. They they were the only team to go uh, with nobody uh, eliminated on on the Visionary team with Martell and the Warlord, right? And then you get to WrestleMania and you lose in 59 seconds. I mean, wow. I mean, and I, I mean, am I wrong? Were, were Power and Glory ever heard from again? Uh, I mean, I think they, uh, I don't, I don't know if this was the end of them, but I mean, it looks good. <laughs> but, uh, but, but it certainly, I mean, I don't, I don't think they had anything high profile after this. I mean, on the coffin. Yeah, man. I mean, and my God, that powerplex, I can't talk enough about that powerplex. That combination superplex splash off the top rope was absolutely a thing of beauty, but not this night because... The Legion of Doom would defeat the Power and Glory in less than a minute, and uh, that would propel them to their tag title shot against the new champs, the Nasty Boys, that summer. And by uh, by the summer that you know the the Legion of Doom won the tag titles, it was either opening match or nothing for the Power and Glory. It was almost a wrap at that point, and pretty much by '92, 
it was over. So, but we know Paul Rumble would eventually become a horseman, right? So that that worked out for him. Well, you know, I mean, then you got me looking at WrestleMania 8's card, and neither uh, Rumble or Hercules were on it. So maybe you're right. Maybe they they were out of the company by that point. Yeah, it was it was pretty much a wrap, man. It was like you know. Hercules and Roma, like, that, that momentum they had in the summer of 90 going into the fall of 90, it was snuffed out. I mean, I guess the the point that they were trying to make in WWE is that, you know, the Legion of Doom were just that good. They're going to run through everybody, but they didn't have to run through them in a minute. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but that was the case. Legion of Doom victorious at WrestleMania 7, which leads to the following match. Um, Virgil, the former bodyguard of Ted DiBiase, who stood up for himself crowd loved it at the Royal Rumble 91, would uh, basically be recruited. I'm about to say he recruited Roddy Piper, but I'd say it's the other way around. Roddy Piper recruited Virgil. Roddy Piper took Virgil under his wing and would accompany him to the ring at WrestleMania 7 against Ted DiBiase. And it was a really feel-good moment of the, of the evening. Um, I really thought this story was told well. Virgil was, you know, Virgil was not just a bodyguard. He was pretty much... DiBiase's errand boy, like he was, he was DiBiase's punk, but he stood up for himself, and he faces DiBiase at WrestleMania Seven, uh, and Virgil's obviously Virgil's first pro- high-profile match. Tell us how this match played out, then. Well, this has been—I mean, b- between here and uh, SummerSlam of '91, it's, it's really what Virgil has been coasting on ever, ever since. Whenever you see him. Uh, Tweeting or whatever you see those pictures of him at the at the fan conventions. It's all it's all due to the popularity and acclaim that he received during this stretch. Um, listen, DiBiase is, is is well well known as one of the best wrestlers of all time. He can have a good match with just about anybody, and he had a good match with Virgil. And uh, I mean, I I prefer the SummerSlam match to this. I, I told you before we started that. Uh, I got them confused in hindsight because I was thinking Virgil winning would be a WrestleMania moment, and then I couldn't remember it happening, and I looked and it happened at SummerSlam. But anyway, uh, Virgil was by Camelot, I believe, and uh, you know we already told you how I feel about two finishes at WrestleMania. Camelot feel the same way, but at least they were going to continue this heading into SummerSlam. And and look, you know the crowd was behind them. Uh, obviously, a lot of that has to do with Piper because. Holden at this point was no longer heel. He was, he was a top top uh, face. He wasn't wrestling full time or anything like that. He was doing commentary, but he was so good on the mic that he was able to give Virgil this charisma and this almost like transfer some kind of character onto him that made him believable and popular. And and I do think that without Piper, this whole storyline, the match, everything would would have been a bust. Listen, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head, and I'm going to tell you why. The proof is in the pudding when it comes to Virgil not having what it takes to be a big star. Even though Virgil would have about three good years coming off the momentum of this 1991. But here's the deal. As you mentioned, Piper was doing most of Virgil's promos. Virgil was very athletic. Virgil was very good. But Virgil could not cut a promo. So Virgil basically, and, and, and Piper... To WWE's credit, were tied at the hip. Virgil was pretty much getting all his talking done by Roddy Piper. But after SummerSlam, when he won the to your to your point, which was a better match, I agree. 
won the million dollar belt at SummerSlam, that's about the time when Piper and Virgil split up. Not that they fell apart or anything, but just the natural progression of storyline brought them their separate ways. And Virgil was pretty much on his own. Virgil, that's when Virgil would kind of sink back into what he would eventually be. A mid-card, early-card guy, but he would never achieve the success. 1991 was Virgil's biggest year. He won at WrestleMania. He won the million-dollar belt at SummerSlam. By 91 Survivor Series, which, by the way, I believe he was a member of Piper's team on the Survivor Series 91. But other than that, it wouldn't be much else because he can't cut a promo. And that's unfortunate because Virgil was a very athletic guy. Absolutely. And, and he, would, he would have been a homegrown star for them because we've spent all these years building him up with the bodyguard. And you made a good point earlier about his, you know, was he really a bodyguard? Because it's not like, um, I don't know, it's not like when, when Michael's brought in Diesel as his bodyguard and Diesel actually hurt people. I mean, virtually, you don't really remember Virgil Lane smoking on many people. He usually <laughs> uh, got beat up himself. You're right, you're right. He got beat up most of the time. He was more of a diversion guy, you know what I mean? Yeah. No doubt, no doubt. But Virgil is victorious at WrestleMania. You can never take that away from him. And matter of fact, if I think about it, Virgil is 2-0 and at WrestleMania. Can you believe that? <laughs> Virgil is 2-0. and He's undefeated. I'm not to put a little bit out much on it, but that's technically true. He's undefeated at WrestleMania. So Virgil with Piper in his corner defeats DiBiase via countout. That's actually when Sensational Sherry, after Macho Man was gone, uh, she joined DiBiase, and that would start their run together as a team, or I guess manager and uh, and superstar. Uh, the following match would basically be the traditional, let's get everybody nice and comfortable in their seats before the main event kind of a match. The Mountie, he would go on to a really moderately cool storyline with Bret Hart where he won the title, lost it a couple days later at Royal Rumble to uh, to Roddy Piper. But before we got there, it was WrestleMania 7. Mountie was pretty much a well, relative unknown. Uh, he was about to kind of go head-to-head with the boss man at SummerSlam to, like I said earlier, find out who was the true law and order of the WWE. But before he got there, he had to get through Tito Santana. And Tito Santana at this stage in his career, a man who went 1-7 at WrestleMania, was pretty much going to be the guy that WWE was going to use uh, to get a new star over, especially in a high-profile match. I say high-profile match, John, because any match at WrestleMania is high-profile. Am I right? Absolutely. So Santana was put in the spot to basically lose to the to the Mountie. Whatever you got on this match, please give it to the people. It, it was pretty much a Mountie... Uh, coming out party, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it served the same purpose as The Undertaker and Snuka, um, you know, it, 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 and that's okay, sometimes you need that, I mean, I mean, over all these big time matches taking so long in the car show with seven hours, sometimes you have matches with these, which is the single purpose of getting a guy over, like you said, in a high profile spot, and that was exactly what happened here with the family, before the Bret Hart thing, don't want to have that rivalry with Boston, which is awesome. So uh, th- this was good stuff. Absolutely. So the Mountie is victorious. He uses the uh, shock stick to get the advantage over over Tito, and Tino Tito's record at the time would drop to one and six one and six at WrestleMania. The following year would be his fa- final WrestleMania appearance, where he would eventually end his career as a one and seven performer at WrestleMania. But even though that poor record exists. 
He is a former tag champion. He is a former Intercontinental Champion. And he was victorious at the first ever WrestleMania. So, Tito Santana, a deserving Hall of Famer, but known mostly for uh, high-profile losses, especially at this stage in his career. So, that would lead to the main event of WrestleMania 7. We talked about it at the open of this show. Um, the match was not going to sell out 100,000 people, so they made the right decision to move it to a smaller venue. The storyline was intriguing. Sergeant Slaughter was primed and ready for his, the biggest match of his life. Maybe outside of Pat Patterson in a boot camp match back in the early 80s. But this was definitely Sergeant Slaughter's all-time biggest match of his career. He was the main event of WrestleMania. Uh, nobody could ever take that away from him. He was the WWE champion. No one ever can take that away from him. And he was arguably the biggest heel in the business at that time and nobody can take that away from him either but it seemed like he was being led no pun intended to the slaughter am i right absolutely i mean everyone knew to finish this no i mean it just hogan in that time rarely lost regularly lost with the, the warrior i think cleanly the year before and then of course that uh he got uh, screwed at the, the main event with, with DiBiase buying another referee. Right. So, obviously, Hogan was the favorite to win. Plus, it's WrestleMania. Hogan is going to win. They're not going to send the crowd home unhappy on the biggest show of the year. And uh, I think at this time, now, now don't, don't quote me on this. I could be wrong. I think the war had ended. So uh, it was, Yeah, I think, it was, I think it was at rest at that point. You're right. Yeah, so... You know, even even though Slaughter had just won the title in January, there wasn't much farther they were going to go with with this character, the storyline. So it, it, I don't know. To me, it, it, I, like I said earlier, I wish they would have put the match order because I think Warrior Two, who's going to win? I think that would have been a much better ending. Plus, with Liz coming out, but they went patriotic. I mean, that was the team of the event. And like you said, the title always goes on last back then. So. Uh, yeah, it, it was what it was. It was a job that needed to get started. It wasn't a bad match for anything. It just wasn't as exciting as uh, other choices were. Uh, I agree with you. I mean, how cool would it have been to see Macho Man and Elizabeth walk off into the sunset as WrestleMania 7 went off the air? That would have been really cool. But I guess as a, how old was I, five-year-old, seven-year-old kid, it was cool to see Hogan walk away with the title. Um, but at the same time, again, a little bit of a lackluster main event looking back. I called it, because I know my listeners are very perceptive. I know you're very perceptive, John. When I started this show with you tonight, I said it was one of the most historic and important pay-per-views of all time. So I feel like I'm kind of contradicting myself by saying it was a lackluster main event. But the reason why I say it was one of the most important pay-per-views of all time is because this would be Shawn Michaels' coming out party. This would be The Undertaker's coming out party. This would be uh, the Legion of Doom's coming out party. So I felt like more so than Hogan winning the title, I felt like this was a pay-per-view that will be remembered for major superstars in the history of this business having their first big moment. Absolutely. And that's on top of the Savage Warrior match and, and the Liz um, reunion. And, and at the time, you know, Trick WWE thought, Virgil, this would be his coming out party, that he would become a star for years to come. So it's I mean, there, there was a lot going on. Overall, it was a fun event. It was, it was a great event. You know, I, I look back on this event finally. I think of it as one of the better WrestleMania's. 
And, and in terms of, uh, of history, I mean, you can't deny the, the real-world ramifications of, of them having to move arenas and have to readjust. And, uh, you know, I think WrestleMania 8 the next year was probably uh, better than WrestleMania 7. And WrestleMania 6 was probably better than WrestleMania 7. And that's maybe why it gets overlooked. But if you go back and watch it, I think you'll enjoy it. I agree with you, man. Listen, we want to thank you uh, for being with us, John, uh, of, uh, you know, the wrestling estate. We, I, I've checked out your stuff. I think you're really talented, man. And we want to thank you for bringing those talents uh, here to Hubbard Wrestling Weekly tonight, man. We look back fondly on March 24th, 1991. And we want to thank you, man. It was awesome having you with us. Well, I appreciate you having me, and I hope you'll have me back again. This was a great thing. And you know, when you first told me about WrestleMania 7 we were going to do it, I thought, uh, you know, I'm excited for it, but, you know, I don't know how, I don't know how well it's going to be uh, given it there. But you and I thought we had a good crew here, and I enjoyed the back one. Thank you. No doubt, man. We really enjoyed having you. Before we let you go, we want to make sure that we give room to you to allow the people to know where they can find your show, find your social media. This is a talented guy, y'all. I'm giving him my stamp of approval. I want him to tell everybody where you can find them. So, uh, John, talk to the people, man. Well, we can check out everything we do at thewrestlingestate.com. We provide our, our bread and butter is independent wrestling coverage, primarily in the Northeast. I'm talking Philadelphia, New Jersey, and Delaware. We cover tons of promotions there. We cover the events. We give you photos that you won't see anywhere else. We have exclusive interviews. Right now on the website, if you go up there, you will see an exclusive report. Nobody else has it. On ECWA, the longest-running independent promotion in the U.S. is officially on hiatus, and we have the full story as to why, including quote, quotes from the wrestlers and management. And uh, you know, I have a big team with me. Uh, we have about ten of us uh, spread out from all over the country, as well as the guys from the U.K. So everybody brings something different to the table. We offer, but uh, you know, like I said earlier, we try to cover every promotion out there. We do uh, roundtables where we all talk. We have a podcast. We have lists. We have interviews. You name it, we've got it. Uh, we're looking to extend it to video. So if anybody out there is interested in joining us and uh, wants to lend their video talents, uh, hit us up on Twitter at Bob Wrestling TST. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at The Wrestling Estate. We uh, finally uh, got our Instagram going at The Wrestling Estate 2019. And then, uh, you know, just come to the site, check things out, and, uh, and support us. I appreciate it. No doubt, 100%. You guys should definitely check out the Wrestling Estate. John and his staff are doing some amazing things over there. John, I thank you once again for being on the show. I'm sure we're going to definitely work together down the line on your show, on my show. We're going to keep this thing going. Uh, big shout-out right now before I let you guys go to Fight TV. The staff over there, Joel, Ivan, really cool guys, really cool staff over there. They're doing some amazing things. They're bringing you the very best when it comes to like wrestling pay-per-views, combat sports pay-per-views um, of all kinds, MMA, boxing. They just uh, gave us the Tyson Fury fight internationally from Las Vegas. They've given us Paulie Malignaggi in a, in a bare-knuckle fight coming up on Saturday night. It's an amazing pay-per-view coming up. They got Ring of Honor, Best in the World coming up. They had uh, New Japan. They had some more New Japan coming up. Impact Wrestling Slammiversary in July. Fight TV is where it's at, y'all. So big shout-out to Fight TV. And because of the relationship that Hubbard Wrestling Weekly and Fight TV now have, 
thanks to that staff over there, I'm able to bring you some really cool things, which is contests to win codes to win free pay-per-views. What I mean by that is, for instance, tonight on my Twitter account, for all those who registered, for all those who did what I asked them to do, retweeted, subscribed, whatever the instructions were, tonight I'm going to reveal the winner, winners, plural, of my Shine 59 pay-per-view contest and my Impact Wrestling Slammiversary 17 contest. Those winners will be revealed. And for those who entered and do not win, do not worry. You will have another chance, many more chances, but specifically another chance to win real soon because later this week I'm going to drop some more information on my Twitter account at hub underscore wrestling about how you can win a code to watch Ring of Honor Best in the World on Fight TV for free. That's how cool this situation is. So once again, shout out to Fight TV. I couldn't have done this situation without you. Appreciate you guys so much. Also, sending appreciation to Bellator MMA. They are really cool over there. Their staff is amazing. Dan, CJ, my boys, I appreciate you guys. Much respect to the president as well, Scott Coker. Bellator is doing some great things. I just was able to cover on behalf of Hubbard Wrestling Weekly, uh, Bellator 222, the retirement of the legend, Chael Sonnen. I had a post-fight interview with him exclusively on Hubbard Wrestling Weekly's YouTube channel. Check that out right now. I had an interview with the man who is still the Bellator welterweight champion of the world, Roy McDonald. Make sure you check that out as well. Once again, that's Hubbard Wrestling Weekly on YouTube. Shout out to Fight TV. Shout out to Bellator MMA. Shout out to Bodyslam.net, The Daily Smart, and all platforms that you may be listening to this podcast right now. We'll be back in two weeks with another fresh episode as we keep the momentum going. So on behalf of my guest, John of the Wrestling Estate, I am the founder and host of Hubbard Wrestling Weekly, Sean Hubbard. God bless you. We'll talk to you next time. Peace. This has been a production of HubbardWrestlingWeekly.com, home of the Hubbard Wrestling Weekly podcast. The very best in professional wrestling, both independent and mainstream. The ideas and content of this show are the exclusive property of HubbardWrestlingWeekly.com. The opinions of its hosts and guests are theirs and theirs alone, as this show and website are not associated with any professional wrestling organization.